Welcome to The Quarantine Tapes, a daily podcast from Onassis, L.A. and Dublin. Hosted by Paul Holdengraber, this series chronicles shifting paradigms in the era of social distancing. Hello, could I please speak with Abraham Verghese? Speaking, Paul. How are you? Abraham, what a pleasure to have you on this call. Thank you so much for making the time and for being part of the quarantine tapes. You asked me how I am. I am very happy to be speaking to you and <laughs> extremely eager to hear how you have been spending these last four months of what we might call the quarantine times. I know, that's a great question. I feel like uh, I've been right in the middle of it um, you know, just uh, living and experiencing the evolving story at many levels, but especially at the level of my, you know, my narrow world of the hospital where, you know, we went from normal to suddenly realizing that this thing was upon us. It was in our county and having patience. And, you know, I think as a storyteller, in addition to my, my day job, I, I, I couldn't help seeing that it had all the elements of story evolving. You know, we had the conflict and the crisis the only thing we don't have is the ending right but it's been it's been fascinating to see how a hospital goes from you know its regular routine to suddenly having to create scenarios where we think about what happens if we lose one third of our staff because of uh, you know attrition or quarantine what happens if we lose half of them and then to watch all our patients uh population basically stay away and that's the lifeblood of the economy or the engine of our little country if you like and all our attention focused on COVID and you know just to give you a sense of the scale we use 20,000 masks every day on a normal day pre-COVID and so if you remember the early months of all the worry about how do we get enough personal protective equipment and gloves gowns masks you know that was that was so all-encompassing for a while and then of course the narrative has shifted now to, you know, is there a surge? Is the surge coming? Have we passed the surge? And so it goes. It's just been a fascinating thing to see the evolving narrative. And also my great sense of fellowship with colleagues in far-flung places from, you know, from Italy to Delhi to New York to Brooklyn and, you know, just feeling fortunate that we're not suffering as much as they are, but also feeling terribly, terribly guilty that um, we haven't been there to help them. And I guess the other thing that I find myself marveling at, which is a strange word to be using in these times, is is the pace of science, you know, the ingenuity of this virus and the pace of scientific discovery. I mean, to think about the fact that within a few weeks of this virus existing on Earth, we knew its entire genome. And a really? Few really? That we knew, really? Yeah, yeah. And a few weeks after that, we knew exactly what part of the virus targeted what receptor in the human body. And, you know, so as a scientist, uh, I think it's much more refreshing for me to look at the scientific headlines than to look at the daily news. Because, as I said, the virus is logical, science is doing its best, and then it's so divorced from the 
the larger narrative around this, which you and I are living through, you know, of how do how does a populace respond to this? And I must say, I think that our urge to locate ourselves in a story is very human. I mean, you know, where were you when people landed on the moon? Where were you? You know, we're always full of those questions where we're trying to place ourselves in time in an evolving narrative. And I think a lot of us, and perhaps the quarantine tapes fits that bill, we have this great need to tell the story almost as a means of surviving this plague, is to be able to locate it in the story that we can make sense of for ourselves. You know, it, That's it, a long-winded it, answer. No, 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 <laughs> but it, it, I'll, I'll, I'll unpack many of its elements. Uh, first of all, um, yes, uh, the quarantine tapes is very much about that. It's a chronicle of our time. When we look back, it will tell a story. It will tell a story from so many different parts of the world, so many different disciplines, so many points of view. And it, when you when you use the word narrative and you use the word survive, it reminded me of of the extraordinary, very short quotation of Umberto Eco, who said, "You know, to survive, you must tell stories." But I'm also immediately taken by this notion of narrative, which you've used maybe five or six times in the space of just a few minutes. And you, <laughs> you, you, you wrote to me, and I think that that's what's so interesting. On the one hand, you're an infectious disease doctor at uh, Stanford. And on the other hand, on the other hand, you are a writer who tell stories, tell stories very often uh, from the point of view of someone who is a scientist and a doctor. And it made me think of, of what you wrote to me when you said that you're thinking of an overarching narrative that will tie all of this together. And that made me think, and I promise to stop after that, Abraham, that made me think of John Berger, who said that poetry can repair no loss but it defies a space which separates by reassembling, oh, wow. by reassembling what has been scattered. So what are you, what are you assembling, as it were now, in, in your mind and maybe, in fact, on paper? Well, I must say I love that quote because I think it's uh, analogous to uh, long ago Richard Felser, uh, a very distinguished physician writer, had uh, I think he had a short story collection called Taking the world in for repairs. Oh, really? And I think that mm. I think that story does that. You know, we we engage in stories to understand how the world lives. We use stories to educate our children, and I think it's just a very human instinct to to sort of think in terms of stories. And what is medicine, Paul? But story plus plus, but life plus plus. You know, life at its most dramatic at times, even though a lot of the time it's fairly routine, but I think it's the practice of watching, the practice of, you know, connecting the stories that you're seeing and living with the, you know, the larger repertoire of stories that you have in your consciousness. And in that sense, to come back to your question, it strikes me how some of our frustration at the vagaries of human behavior, about the missteps in the way this is being handled by politicians and so on, None of these should really surprise us, because if you study uh, narratives of the plague, um, and I wish our politicians had studied this, you would understand that all these things are really destined to be, unless we really have very educated humanists who rule countries, which, as you know, we don't. But I'm, I'm just marveling when I look at things like Camus' The Plague to see 
how many echoes and instructions even are there uh, for how we might live. In fact, there's a lovely definition that Dorothy Allison has about fiction. She, she calls it the great, the great lie that tells the truth about how the world lives. Mm. And so, you know, in Camus' wonderful fictional account of Oran, I think you have a great lie that tells the truth about how the world lives, about how ignorance can be such an evil force and how, you know, the, the elements that we're seeing right now all reclaim themselves. But I'm, I'm also trying to connect this ball to the larger societal narrative that has, you know, been very much connected to this, uh, I think, related to this. And that is the narrative of the George Floyd incident and all the, uh, you know, emotions and the, the, the waking of the subconscious mind that has taken place in people who are not black. I mean, that is just absolutely intriguing to me. Uh, you know, I was born in Africa very much. You know, I'm aware of the whole stain, uh, you know, that we carry in America of the first slaves coming in 1619. And in many ways, as Mitch McConnell said, it is the original sin that we have not quite come to terms with, even though the succession of, you know, constitutional amendments have given more freedom. And we have no more constitutional amendments. This is going to be something that requires something you can't legislate. It's an opening of the human heart. It's a true moment of understanding of the experience of the other. So it's I think a, they're all... It's a, it's a reckoning. It's a reckoning. And, you know, at the very simplest level, it's a reckoning because this virus has disproportionately affected, uh, you know, minorities more than anyone else. I mean, we've always known that there are health equities. We've always known that, you know, uh, mortality rates are very much related to health inequities. But... Uh, Nowhere has this become more evident than in the way this virus has savaged the country. I mean, at the one level, it doesn't really think about who it's attacking. But at another level, it takes advantage of crowding. It takes advantage of lack of access to care. It takes advantage of, you know, poverty. And I think it just managed to come at this moment when, you know, it wound up being the catalyst for a kind of uh, waking of the subconscious mind that I'm not, I'm not sure we would have experienced uh, otherwise, in quite this fashion. What what you just said made me think that there there are many viruses. There's more than one virus going around. Yeah, I think and that's when, very and, true. And when you spoke about the stain, that is but another virus which we haven't dealt with at all. Yeah, I think that's actually true of so many diseases. I mean, I think of my early experiences with HIV, uh, where I cut my teeth. I remember as a young practitioner who was seeing HIV in a small town and one of the few people seeing patients, willing to see patients, and they were coming from far and wide. I always thought that I was dealing with two diseases. Mm. You know, there was the virus on the one hand, but then there was a second disease that traveled with the virus, and it was the metaphor of what it meant to have that virus. And the metaphor in those days was the metaphor of shame and secrecy. And, you know, in many times I thought that the metaphor killed my patient before the virus had a chance. They, they took their lives or they did, you know, they did self-destructive things because they could not live with what it meant to have the virus. And I've been racking my brain and maybe you can help me as to what is the metaphor of this virus? I mean, plague is obvious, but, you know, I think it's, disorder is confusion it's exposing you know the, the very 
lack of connectedness of not, not just ourselves as a country, but a world such that it could take such advantage of us. And what Disorder is, would be the word. And what is so terrible is that in, in, in this moment, the last thing that medicine needed was more distance. You have spoken so you have spoken so beautifully, Abraham, about the the tactile inebriation the doctor feels with his patient, the need the need to touch in the sense of a tactile relationship, in the sense of contact, in the sense of having tact, which in the Middle Ages was often seen as a virtue, as a cardinal virtue. And now we need all this distance, and this distance keeps us from an understanding and even a possibility of knowing the stories of our patients. Can you comment on this and on this idea of distance, you know, not only social distancing of six feet, but the fact that many of the patients who die of this terrible disease of the, die alone, not being able to say farewell to those closest to them. Yeah, I know. It's been the most painful thing to observe. Uh, I mean, and yeah, even people without COVID, I had uh, the misfortune of a dear friend who had a chronic illness and a, a flare-up that required her to be in hospital for about six weeks in the middle of all this. And her family could not visit, not because of anything related to her disease, but because of COVID. And, uh, You know, she finally said she had enough and she died at home. But, you know, the, the highlight of her stay was really the moment she got home and was finally able to receive the love of her family and friends before she died. And then the heart-wrenching experience of a, of a funeral that takes place virtually. I mean, it is really heartbreaking. But the flip side to that, and as you know, I'm a great advocate for the physical examination as being more than just a gathering of facts more than just what the body is trying to tell us, but also this great moment of intimate connection. You know, it's such a ritual with all the trappings of ritual, you know, in a right. in a room whose furniture does not look like the furniture in your house or mine. And, you know, one participant wearing a white gown, the other one wearing a paper gown and strange ritualistic tools being pulled out. And then finally, one person gets uh, undressed and, and allows the stranger to examine them. I mean, We're absolutely unable to do that in quite the same way in, with a patient with COVID uh, because we're so masked and gowned and anonymous. But there's been an interesting silver lining to the story. Um, we, for example, were in the genesis of our telemedicine video visits before COVID hit. And they have ramped up literally 50-fold in the last uh, couple of months. And sitting in on some of those calls, it's been really humbling to me, almost embarrassing Because for the first time, we're seeing patients in their houses. We're getting a much better sense of who they are when we don't make them these anonymous individuals who traipse to our clinic and have to find parking and have to sit in the waiting room. You know, and we see their family wandering by. We get a sense of their resources. And, you know, all the lip service I and so many others paid to this whole notion of, you know, the social determinants of health and the need to really understand the family and the setting. You know, we had this opportunity many, many months ago, uh, and we're only just beginning to understand that, in a sense, uh, the patient is reminding us that, that this is where they live, and the burden is now on us more and more. I'm talking about the outpatient setting. Burden is on us now to take advantage of this moment. I mean, there's so many opportunities popping up 
to change medicine, but I think this will be one of the most interesting ways, not just televisits, but the notion that we can have a home clinic and we can visit the patient in the home and there are legions of data points that we have no idea about because we're never there. We make them come to us. It's so interesting because immediately what I see you saying is by going to a patient's home, you end up being a semiotician of some sort. You read the signs, you read where they are, you read their surroundings, you read what makes them comfortable. Another way, Abraham, of storytelling. Absolutely. I mean, you know, just to give you an example of that, my, my most powerful uh, memory of home visits, and I try to do them when I can, but they're usually in crisis, they're usually at the end of life, you know, and uh, what I'm learning is that we shouldn't wait that long. But I remember going to see an HIV patient in his house uh, because he could no longer come to the clinic. He was too weak to come to the clinic and he was not acutely ill enough to be in the emergency room. So I took myself at the end of the day because it didn't sit well with me that I might not see him again. I took myself over to his house, which is you know, way out in the countryside in a trailer. And I remember, Paul, how powerful the effect of my coming was on him and the family in terms of coming to terms with the illness, even though I'd gone there just for my own purposes. And I, I suddenly realized, you know, this is what the horse and buggy doctor of a couple of hundred years ago did so well. You know, they could not cure, but they could heal by their presence, by mm. their willingness to come to the home. You know, they could, they could cure the soul, if you like, even when they could not cure the disease. And I, I try to convey this a lot to my students um, ever since I had that insight that, you know, I use an analogy of if you go to your home after the end of the day and find that your lock has been broken, your door is open, all your valuables are gone, you will be bereft, uh, not just because you lost physically valuable stuff, but because someone violated your space. And then if the police come by an hour later and say, we found the person who did this. Here is all your stuff back. You will be cured, but you will not be healed. Your sense of violation will linger. And I think that, you know, a valuable lesson of this epidemic has been that, you know, the science alone and the rest restoration of the physical is not quite enough. There's a huge moral, spiritual violation that's happening to all of us from being confined from our, to our houses, uh, not being allowed to meet our loved ones, watching them die by themselves, you know. It's um, it's the it's the second part of this illness, the great isolation that it engenders. You know, you talk beautifully about the sacred text of the body, and you like this little anecdote more than an anecdote. Actually, something that Jackson Pollock wrote. He said, "When I'm in my painting, I'm not aware of what I'm doing. It is only after a sort of get acquainted period that I see what I have been about." It is only when I lose contact with the painting that the result is lost, is a mess. Otherwise, there is pure harmony, an easy give and take, and a painting comes out well. And this, to you, in a way, speaks directly to the, um, uh, the challenges of practicing medicine today. I'm wondering why. You know, it's funny that quote is not one I've heard before, but I identify with it almost immediately. You know, uh, you know, between you and me, as you know, I'm a immigrant to this country, and you know, always having to prove myself, having studied medicine elsewhere. You're always a foreign graduate. You're always, when you first arrive, you're working in the inner city hospitals. You're working everywhere where American medical graduates 
don't want to work. And uh, mind you, without this annual influx of foreign doctors, many of these places would, would simply collapse. And so you always have this you know, sense of um, conflicting identity, trying to prove yourself. And w- when I am at Stanford now, which I've been for almost a decade, believe it or not, I walk around thinking, you know, this is paradise. Any moment someone's going to tap me on the shoulder and say, we're on to you. You're out of here. <laughs> you, know? you, 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 you too. You too. I think, I think many, many of us walk around with that strange <laughs> feeling that we might be found out. But the only moment that I don't feel that way is when I'm on the wards, you know, and uh, mm. people who know me well are always commenting on that. I mean, as busy as it might get, as hectic as it gets, I'm going to be on the wards starting the July 4th weekend again for another week. It's somehow all of uh, my insecurities uh, fade away in this wonderful ministry. I mean, this is not to say it's always rewarding and easy and You know, we have our share of very, very difficult patients and families and so on. But nevertheless, the enterprise of caring for the other, doing your best, even when they're not necessarily appreciative or, you know, are actually combative. The enterprise, uh, to me, is very restoring. And I feel incredibly blessed to not just be a part of it, but to actually get to sit back like this with you and think about it and, you know, ask myself, how does this story end? What is the narrative? What is the narrative going to tell us? You know, uh, you may not have known that Jackson Pollock uh, quote, but I know that this one matters to you greatly, coming from Somerset Maugham on human bondage, where it goes like this. Philip saw humanity there in the rough, the artist canvas, and he said to himself, this is something I can be good at, which spoke to you, I, I think, profoundly because that in, in in a sense was a vocation you chose for yourself. Yeah, yeah you know, you, thank you for doing that research because I love that passage so much and I'm sure I've talked about it and written about it. I, uh, you know, I think it was a, it was a moment in time when I, I, I have brothers who are sheer geniuses, you know, math wizards, and I had no head for math or any particular aptitude in school. And yet when I, but I was a reader, I was a voracious reader. But when I came to that passage in All Human Bondage where Philip is in Paris wrestling to be an artist and, you know, he has this terrible moment of truth where he realizes that he doesn't quite have the talent and he retreats with his tail between his legs to go back to London where there's a small annuity if he chooses to study a profession. And, you know, then he finally, after all the years of drudgery, the first two years of anatomy, whatnot, he finally arrives on the wards and he, he has this epiphany. Philip saw humanity there in the rough, the artist's canvas, and he said to himself, this is something I can do, this is something I can be good at. And, you know, it was it was a moment of epiphany for me. I felt like, um, you know, the, the author was saying, and he's a physician himself, that you don't have to be a genius, you don't have to be anything, except you have to be willing to work very hard and you have to care deeply and empathize with your fellow human being, and then you can uh, you can enter this covenant. And to the degree that uh, you bring comfort to others, it will also comfort you. Because I think all of us in medicine, a major motivation for us to go to medicine is to take care of our own woundedness. There's a, mm-hmm. a woundedness mm-hmm. that uh, is easily easily satisfied by ministering to others. And um, you know, it's been about the career, which I um, which I just feel incredibly blessed to, to have been part of. How do you impart that to students now? Because I imagine, you know, so much of their, their life 
it's done with speed it's done they have to move quickly you know the whole notion of i i think maybe you and i have spoken about that on other occasions but this whole notion of slow reading um, of reading the body slowly, of taking time, of taking time uh, when when you see a patient to hear their story. The story you hear and the story they tell is so important, but there are so many other factors, economical factors, you have to move quickly. How do you manage uh, also as a professor, not just as a doctor in, on the ward, but someone who teaches students to become more human, in a sense? Well, you know, I think my own bias is that, uh, paradoxically, students come to us with a wonderful capacity to imagine the suffering of others. And mm. they really don't need much instruction, but a very strange thing happens to them when they go from their second to their third year of medicine, when they go from the preclinical stuff to being on the wards, uh, what, I ten- what I tend to call from their pre-cynical to cynical. Uh, what happens is that they just get uh, inundated with how much information that they have to swallow, and they become very disease-oriented. And, uh, you know, it's our doing, basically. It's our fault. And patients wind up becoming, you know, the heart attack in bed three and, the, you know, the pneumonia in bed four. And the good news is that most students uh, come back to some version of themselves, typically before residency, during residency, after residency, uh, but I think what you can do uh, as an attending on the ward is, and I find this much more useful on the wards than in the classroom, is when you're rounding, to look for those moments of connection, to look for those opportunities to, to sort of connect the human experience beyond the disease that is in front of us. And it's all around us, and actually students sometimes need permission to be allowed to emote like that. I always say, if I see a student crying on the ward, I know I've just met someone who's making, who has the makings of a great physician because you have to care about this to do it well. You could be technically very skilled, but to do it really well, if you don't really care, if it's just a, a job, at some point it will, it will actually defeat you before it defeats a patient because, you know, without the joy in what you're doing, without that sense of calling and empathy, without feeling, I don't think you can really enjoy uh, what is a very rigorous and dangerous profession right now, quite frankly. Sadly, in in closing, Abraham, um, you were talking, in, in a sense, you were talking about the elegance of science at the very beginning of our conversation and, and how in, in some way that inspires you with what I take to be a certain optimism. Um, do you believe that this moment um, both of the social unrest and the unrest that has come through the pandemic is a portal, might open a space for something new to come in and for change to happen. You know, I hope so. I hope so. But I, I think that the lesson of Camus and so many others is that, uh, you know, don't hold your breath. I think we'll be a little bit better prepared. But, you know, plague always takes us by surprise, as Camus says, no matter how many times. We experienced that war and plague always comes as a surprise, although there's always been war and plague. I think uh, what might happen, what I'd like to see happen, is that the triumph of science will allow people who are so science skeptic to become more appreciative. I would like to think that politicians uh, from the very top will begin to be more savvy, that they need to understand story, they need to understand previous plague narratives in order to understand life and to govern properly. 
And I hope that all of us, you know, will just sort of become better human beings, less, uh, less, less, less unconscious about the fact that we are mortal, that life ends, and therefore better able to reach out to others and to, you know, share the wealth of our of our whatever we have to share. So I'm an eternal optimist, and I think that the end of this narrative, which I just started with, is that you know ultimately the this will all come together painfully so but in a way that shapes this world to be in a better place, in a better direction. You know, you've mentioned Camus so many times that I have to read this quotation to you and have you comment on it as we say goodbye in the plague, which now has been sold tens of thousands of times around the world, which is itself an interesting phenomenon. Camus writes the following, the evil in the world comes almost always from ignorance and goodwill can cause as much damage as ill will if it is not enlightened. People are more often good than bad, though in fact that is not the question. What a beautiful quote. You know, I have one of his quotes on my wall right in front of me. Tell me. Uh, And it says, I have no idea what awaits me, but as long as there are sick people in the world and they need curing, I will be there. You know, and I think that could just as well be a Hippocratic oath because I think it's powerful. Sometimes you just have to Take another step and take another step and keep going. Abraham, what a what a distinct pleasure it has been to to speak with you. Thank you so much for taking the time and I can't wait to see you in person, but for now I send you a virtual hug and thank you very, thank you, very friend. much. Thank you very much. Take good care, stay safe. You too. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye bye. To support this show and Dublab's progressive programming. Go to dublab.com slash support.